If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 5 in a little while, but wanted to uh, take just a quick second to frame where it is that we are uh, and what we're doing for the month of January. So on the 30th, we're going to be talking about who we are as a church and who we believe the Lord has called us to be, and in the meantime then, what we're wanting to do is say, before we... get on the discussion of who we are as Midtown Fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee. What we want to do is we want to spend this time interrogating our own hearts as individuals who make up this community. And so we're examining our own hearts uh, this month and asking questions. And last week, Joel started with the question, the just basic fundamental question of how do you see yourself before the Lord? How do you see yourself as somebody who's in a relationship with God? And we talked about the ways that we go about living our lives and um, how when, when an opportunity to do something or a scenario is presented, one of, the off, one of the first questions we often ask is, well, how can that be done? Uh, and we talked about how when we're getting into the question of how as the first question that we ask to something that the Lord may be doing in us or through us, It's a very pragmatic approach that eliminates a lot of the need for faith and trust in the Lord. And we're talking about, we're we're digging deeper into this. The problem with running to the question of how is that it places the role of faith in ourselves as something doable, as something pragmatic, as something practical. Hey guys, look at that, front row. Wow, it's good to see you right there. The question how is an important question uh, to ask, of course. You've got you to count the cost of things. But before and beneath and over and around the question of how lies the deeply theological matter of who makes anything possible. And so we're wanting to get to the root of what it means when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Are we people who believe that? Are we people whose, whose belief in the possibilities of what God can do in and through our lives is such that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, but with him, nothing is impossible with God. So that's where we're going. Last week, we were essentially asking the question, if Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, or I am the trunk and you're the branches, do we believe that? Do we believe that he is the one who is supplying all of our needs according to his riches and glory, or do we believe that that rests on us? Today, the question that we want to dig into is, on its surface, a very simple question, but as we start to dig down and drill down into it, it becomes a very complicated question, and the question is this, what do you want? What do you want It's a big question. What drives your life right now? What is motivating you? What is getting you out of bed in the morning? Where are your hopes? This past week in New York, two people, I think, I don't think they both lived in New York, but the New York lottery, $355 million split between two winners. So, what's that? That's a lot of money. I want to ask you a question. Would you like to win that? That's, yeah. (laughs) We're getting some yeses. Well, why? What do you get 
out of it? What do you get for $355 million? There are entire websites devoted to the tragedies of lottery winners, the tragic stories of people who have won millions and millions of dollars, stories of ruined lives, squandered wealth, the loss of the ability to trust anybody, including family. And then there's this thing about the tragic decision to retire to a life of leisure in your 20s or 30s, which I contend is a form of suicide. Taking yourself out and losing and forfeiting willingly the ability for you to do anything constructive. We were made to work. There's purpose in work. Now, I'm not saying having a lot of money is the same as a form of suicide, but I'm saying the decision to retire to a tropical island and just drink daiquiris on the beach, that is a tragedy. It's easy to pick on lottery winners. We live in a town, don't we, where people say, I'm not counting on the lottery, but I am pulling myself up by my bootstraps and I am going to strike it rich with a wise financial decision, a hit song, Think of the list of the things. If only this would happen. Then, I was talking with a friend yesterday who said to me, kind of half-joking and kind of dead serious, that he would love to co-write a song with Justin Bieber. (laughs) Because he would be instantly wealthy, right? And he's right. I mean, he, he would be. But... What if you could earn $355 million? Would you want $355 million? And if so, why would you want it? What would would you do with it is one question that we go to. But before that is why. Why would you want it? There's a belief, isn't there, that if I had that, my life would be inherently and intrinsically better. But what would be better? What would be better? I have a friend who's a professional baseball player, had a $70 million contract. $70 million, that's a lot of money. That's enough, right? The problem is all these friends and relatives and all these people have come out of the woodwork. All these, he's a Christian, by the way, and all these ministries call. Everybody wants a slice, and everybody even feels a little bit entitled through their connection to a part of the money that he has and that he's earning by being a professional baseball player. What do you want? It's an important question because for all of us, there is an answer in place. There's an answer in your life of what you want and it's working itself out in your life right now whether you realize it or not. You are driven, you are. So let me give you a theory test it. I might be wrong. It's a theory. But I don't think I'm wrong. What you want most in life is what you're spending your life chasing. Right now. What you want most, you are chasing right now. The problem is that you might be profoundly unaware of what it is that you really want. You may not be able to say what it is, but you are chasing it. And it may be cloaked in all kinds of 
disguises like money, like sex, like power, like recognition, like influence, like independence, like for crying out a little bit of peace and quiet, right? That may be what you're chasing. And this is what we're gonna dig into. What is it that drives us? What do we really want? And John's gospel gives us a really strange episode where this is the question at the heart of a story. And when I first read it, I thought, that's gonna be a great passage to unpack. And the more I got into it, the more I thought, wow, this is a problematic text of scripture. On the surface, it may not appear that way, but we're gonna read it and unpack it, and we're gonna start to see how problematic this is, this encounter that Jesus has with an invalid by a pool. So this is from John 5, verses one through nine. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man who had been, uh, who had been an invalid for 38 years was there. And when Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Let me pray. Lord, when you had this encounter with this man, you interrupted his life in a way where he was never the same after that. And Father, as we dig in and start to see the joy of that blessing but also the weight of that cost, God, I pray that you would make us people of courage beyond what we came in here with, that we would trust you It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. This text, by the way, has been really uh, timely for me. We just moved into our house uh, this past week, and I have been a person for the last um, six months, seven months. If you would ask me, what do you want? Some of you have. You got the same answer every time. We want to be in a house of our own. We want to be in a house of our own. And this has been a great, and we, we're in that house now. We were in this house this week. Many of you came and helped us. Thank you very much. Um, but it's also been a week where the Lord has been raising that question. That house for me has been my $355 million. Why exactly do you want that so bad? What do you think? What do you think you get out of that? And he's not done with me on this. This text here in John I've been to this place, the pools of Bethesda. They're there, you can see them, the five colonnades. What a colonnade is, is it's a row of columns with a little roof over the top. And what it is, is there's these two reservoirs by St. Anne's Cathedral. By the way, if you're ever in Jerusalem and you get to go to St. Anne's Cathedral, sing. Every group that goes in there does that. We sing the doxology. The acoustics in that room are hard to describe, but it's just, ethereal, perfect, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. There's these two reservoirs next to St. Anne's Cathedral, five colonnades, one, two, three, four, 
and then five running right down the middle separating the two pools. Just like it's described here, you, you see it. And these reservoirs were inside the city walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city. And these reservoirs were fed by pipes that came from a place called Solomon's Pools, which, are, which is this large reservoir system out by Bethlehem. That's important. I'm not just telling you this for your own information. It's important because what would happen was they would open a series of gates and the water would come in from Solomon's Pool into the pools of Bethesda to fill them up and it would churn the water. And the people kind of had this superstitious idea that it was an angel of the Lord churning the water when that would happen and that the first invalid into the water when that happened would be cured of whatever it was that was ailing them. And so they had this superstition. It was, it was running. It was part of, it's kind of like winning a lottery, right? And so you have this picture here of a multitude, John says, of blind, lame, and paralyzed brought to this place hoping that they would be the one to really hit it big, that they'd be the one to get in the water. And I want to ask you to take a minute and imagine this scene. Imagine this place where everybody who can't see, can't walk, can't carry themselves, they're brought here and they're set here in this open place where other people are coming as well for waters. It's, it's just this, imagine it. Can you see it? Can you see all the people? A multitude laying there. What does the existence of such a place like this tell us about the world that we live in. Because there are places like this today, right? There are places where you see the poor and the needy and the impoverished and the helpless gathered together in one place, hoping, 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 hoping. What pool do you sit by? Waiting for that long shot blessing. The man in this story has been an invalid for 38 years. If he was born that way, I turned 38 this year. So at least my age, maybe older, and he's one of a multitude. His position is sad, right? I mean, he he had to be carried there. He has to be carried there regularly. He cannot even bring himself to this place. He never wins the race into the water. Never. But he keeps coming back. And so why do you think he keeps coming back? Think about yourself. Is there anything you keep doing, keep doing, even though you know that the odds are slim that you will succeed? Do you think that the man at the pool at Bethesda really believes that he will have his day and that he will be the first into the water? Do you think he's driven by a conviction that one of these days I'm going to do this? And if not, why is he there? 
Because I started thinking about this. I started thinking about the pools that I sit by and the people in my life that I know. And we find comfort, don't we? We find comfort and solace in at least being found in the right place for our condition. That we go to places where I'm not expecting anything great to happen, but at least I know that I'll be with other people like me who also don't expect anything great to happen, but at least we're together. May I submit to you that perhaps a large percentage of us are here because of that. That's what church is. It's a place where we go because we believe something about the condition that we're in and it's an important thing for us to do, but we don't think that we are going to encounter the living God here. Is church that way for you? Is your relationship with the Lord that way for you? You know you should have one, but you don't really expect interaction with him. Think about the view that this man must have of the world in which he lives. Think about his view of his illness, that he is a person who belongs with a particular group of people who are marginalized, that because he is an invalid, he is belonging now to this particular group of people who are not valuable to society and who are kind of waiting on a magic trick to happen in their lives. Think about his view of mercy or grace or healing. He thinks about it in very impersonal terms, that if it's going to happen for him, it's going to be a gamble. It's not going to be an intentional kindness from God. It's going to be because he got lucky. Which takes you then to what does he think about God? What does he think about God to be in this place where he's been told that an angel of the Lord is stirring this magic pool and giving it healing waters and so he's there, he has this view of God that God is somehow like like a genie in a bottle who isn't really dealing directly with him but is just kind of dealing directly with the pool. And any kind of mercy, any kind of healing, any kind of favor isn't for him. It's just for the water and whatever lucky sucker gets himself in that water, then he receives the favor of God. But it's not a relational thing. It's just a trick. It's a trick. When I was in Israel, I was there as a college student, we took a trip to the Jordan River, to this place where they've got all these churches and monuments and everything like that. Anything that happened in scripture, there's some building and some plaque and usually some church that's built on that site. And one of them is, this is where John the Baptist was baptizing people in the wilderness. And it goes down into the, just the banks of the Jordan River. And I am not kidding. Have you ever been to like an amusement park and you get in line to ride a roller coaster and it takes you this way and then this way and then this way and then this way? There is one of those, I'm not lying, that leads down into the Jordan River where you can line up to be baptized. And then, I'm not kidding, you can go to the gift shop and you can buy, okay, so you know the honey bears? The bottles of honey that are shaped like a bear? There is a John the Baptist Jordan River water bottle (laughs) that you may buy and fill up with Jordan River water and take it home. 
What in the world do we believe about God when we want that? What do we believe? What are we saying about him? I'll tell you what we're saying. It's the Jordan River that's special. It's the Jordan River that God cares about. And if we're lucky enough to get in line and wade in before the baptizer closes, it's a sad picture. And this is why studying the doctrine of Scripture is so important for us, to be thoughtful people, because we are all doctrinal people. You're a doctrinal person. You may say, I'm not into doctrine. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. There are beliefs that you hold, that you live by, that you think are gospel. But for most people in the world, we've never really stopped to ask ourselves what those doctrines are that we live by and whether they make sense or not. It's important for us to be students of the world and of the word that we may know what is true, that we could think it through. Because we are the multitudes gathering besides pools that we've been told are magic and we haven't stopped to consider what it is that drives us to this place, to this place. And all the things that you do and that I do to achieve inner peace and success and wealth, what are you really looking for? What does the 355 million give you? What does the new house give you? Is the moral to the story that your desires are running out of control and you need to Rein those things in. You need to curb your desires. You need to not be so driven by desire. C.S. Lewis, many of you have heard this, I know, but it bears repeating. It's a beautiful quote and it's powerful. He wrote this in The Weight of Glory. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing, staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis is the man Consider that, though, the mud pie in the slum, G.K. Chesterton, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What is he looking for? Intimacy? The intimacy of being known? Of being loved? And where does that desire come from? To want to be known, to want to be loved. It comes from being made in the image of God and made for a relationship with God, which is a vacuum that nothing else, nothing else will ever fill it, though we will try and we will try and we will try. And so now we're starting to see why this text is problematic because Jesus is asking this man a complicated question. What would you like What would it be like if life as you've known it for 38 years is about to get unraveled like a cheap sweater? If it's all about to change, would you like your old routines to be replaced with new ones? Would you like your identity to be seriously, seriously revised? Would you like this? 
I'm not sure that the man really wanted to be healed. And the reason I'm not is because when Jesus asked him the simple question, do you want to be healed? The man starts answering the question of how? Do you want to be healed? I come here every day. I try to get into the water every day and there's people there faster than me. They get down into the water first and it keeps happening and it keeps happening. That's not the question Jesus asks. It's a yes or no question. It's a simple question but the man's response is complicated. What paralyzes you from saying, with all my heart I want to be healed? What paralyzes you from that? Do you want to be healed from that? Do you want to be well? Maybe you think you do, but maybe you really don't. Because it's going to cost, and it's going to cost you dearly. Jesus tells the man, pick up your mat and walk, and it is done. He heals him with a word. Did, Jesus, did this man know that Jesus was going to approach him that day and heal him and that he'd be walking home? Jesus gives this man an incredible gift. He gives him the capacity, the ability to do something that he hasn't been able to do for 38 years, to walk. But he does something even more than that. He liberates him from a life of sitting by the pools of superstition He liberates him from the habit of trying to win favor from God through luck and through being at the right place at the right time and through his own effort. Notice, Jesus comes to this man. The man doesn't ask Jesus to help him. Jesus sees him, goes to him, and does this. But as much as Jesus gave him, and this is the way of our Lord, as much as Jesus gave him, he also took a lot from this man. And this is why this is a problematic text. This is what healing looks like. A remedy is given, but your malady is taken. And for many of us, oh, we love our malady. I love my malady. It works. That four drinks every night really knocks the edges off. I love my malady. I'm used to it. It's the life that I know and I don't want to make light of it because this is sacred ground we're talking about here. We really love knowing that I have a place at the pool of Bethesda where my mat goes and I lay every day and that's what I do. That's what I do. And Jesus takes it. This is not yours anymore. Mercy can be painful It takes from us the life that we've learned to cope with, the life that we've learned to navigate. Even if it means we're paralyzed, we learn how to deal with our paralysis. And Jesus quickens the limbs, and now that's gone. What Jesus does with this man is just a little snapshot of what he's doing with all of creation while we're running to every magic pool that we can think of, he is making all things new. John, when he was stranded on the island of Patmos and had this revelation from the Lord, 
Here's one of the things he talks about. The renewal, the healing to all the invalids beside, beside all the pools of superstition. He says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Like Jesus is dwelling in the place where this man is. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Even our desires, he's making those things new. So, what do you want? What do you want before the Lord? Do you want to be well? I pray that 2011 would be for us a year where we deal honestly with what we really want, what we really desire. Who am I before the Lord and what drives me in life? That that question would resonate with us, that we would plaster it where we would see it every day. Do you want to be well? May God give our hearts the courage to want this. Because for many of us, it is an extremely complicated question. May God give us courage, regardless of what it takes away from us. Pray with me. Lord, you show yourself throughout history, throughout your word, as being a God who intervenes, interrupts, thwarts the course of man, that you rescue us from our paralysis, from our fear, from our desperation, from our helplessness. So many stories come to mind of you working through people who were helpless to become what you made them. Abraham, Isaac, the miracle baby, Joseph in the well in Egypt, Moses, David, the youngest and forgotten, all of your disciples in the New Testament, none of whom were affluent or respected, the Apostle Paul who hated you. Lord, you continually work through people who are not able to do what you mean for them to do. Lord, would you put in us a desire, not first a desire to change the world or to have a platform to proclaim your greatness, but that you would put in our hearts first and foremost (coughs) a desire to be healed, a desire to be mended in the places where we're broken, a desire to be quickened in the places where we're paralyzed. Lord, would you give us courage for that? This really is a a story about courage that comes from you. Interrupt us, thwart us, arrest us, expose us, and be merciful. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.